iHeartRadio brings you some of the biggest podcasts of all time, like Stuff You Should Know and Stuff You Missed in History Class, plus the hottest podcasts of the last year, like the Ron Burgundy Podcast, Disgraceland, and Monster, the Zodiac Killer. Not only does iHeartRadio produce some of the most popular podcasts in the world, but now the free iHeartRadio app is the fastest-growing app for listening to your favorite podcasts. Over 280,000 podcasts, all easy to find and free to listen to on the app or anytime at iHeartRadio.com. We've moved our studio today. We're sitting in the Eisenhower Executive Office building right across the street from the White House, which is where a lot of the, quote, White House officials actually work. I mean, many of them would rather have a tiny little broom closet in the actual White House than a palace in the EEOB. But it's, it's quite spectacular here. Yes, the room is beautiful. It has some kind of gold, bronzy, I would say, sort of gilded wallpaper, a lot of portraits of men looking very stern, and I have no idea who they are. I think know. there's enough gold that Donald Trump would feel pretty comfortable in this I think room. so, too. But this is actually a war room. We hear a lot about war rooms and campaigns, but this is a war room here in the EEOB. Well, I think part of this building used to house the offices of the old Secretary of War. Uh, we didn't have a Secretary of Defense until after World War II. And so the person who held that office, which I believe excluded the Navy, um, would have benefited from some of these very fancy rooms. I feel powerful just sitting here, Brian. And talk about power. We have a very special guest, Valerie Jarrett. She is a top advisor to the president, but also probably the best FOB, friend of Barack, of anyone who works here. So if proximity to power is the closest thing, literally, to power, I think she was in an enviable position. She certainly has witnessed an extraordinary eight years, and it will be so interesting to hear her talk about the high points and some of the low points as well. And it'll be fascinating to hear her views on the fact that Barack Obama is gonna be succeeded by someone who essentially ran to overturn his presidency. I'm sure that's a very painful point for a lot of Obama loyalists. We good? Okay. Valerie Jarrett, we're so excited to have you on our podcast. Welcome to the White House, Katie. Delighted to have you here. Thank you. And Brian and I have been so looking forward to this interview. And we wanted to start by asking you how you're feeling. I mean, this must be an incredibly emotional time for you. The end of the Obama administration is coming soon. Tell us just how you're feeling. Well, you know, I've been here since day one, January 20th of 2009, and that it has been truly the most remarkable eight years of my life to be able to be a witness to a transformative time in our country and really to have that bird's eye view and have the ability to work with someone who I have known for 25 years and respect and love uh, both he and his wife so dearly. So I think in the course of the day, I probably have every possible imaginable emotion. So just name some of those emotions. Well, appreciation for the people with whom I've had the privilege of working here in the White House, as well as ordinary Americans from around the country who uh, we have had the privilege of touching and having them touch us. And I will cherish the memories I have of the team here and those folks for as long as I live. 
So you have very positive, obviously, positive memories of being here. But I imagine there have been some disappointments. There have been some disappointments along the way. Some frustrations. There have been frustrations. times that you've been just really ticked off. True. That's true. That's all true. But I will say, um, by nature, I have an optimistic spirit. But the other thing I'll say is is that um, one of the important... um, strengths I think that the president has that I have tried to learn is to take the long view and to recognize that there is an entrenchment in holding on to the status quo and that when we are the force for change, that means it's going to make people uncomfortable. And sometimes people resist change, even if it's change for the better, because we all kind of like the comfort zone. And so when you come here and your intent is to kind of disrupt that status quo, you're going to take an inevitable amount of heat, and that's going to cause frustration. Some of the criticism is totally unjustifiable. Some of it, you know, constructive criticism, always welcome. Um, But I think what has frustrated me most is the people who have put their short-term political interests ahead of what's good for our country. So that I won't miss. But most other things I will. Can you give me an example of somebody who did that? Sure, I can easily. Senator McConnell, who decided on day one that his number one objective was going to be to ensure that President Obama was not reelected. So let me take you back to what was going on in day one. Our economy was in a free fall. Our banks were on the verge of collapse. The automobile industry was literally in bankruptcy. We had a health care crisis. We were in two wars. We had a total dependence on foreign oil. Your number one goal is to make sure President Obama doesn't get reelected. How about let's write the economy? How about let's make sure everybody gets health care? How about let's figure out how we can wind down the wars and try to uh, find Osama bin Laden? Those were constructive things that we could have done together. And so his willingness, again, to just focus through the political lens as opposed to how can I make sure that you can afford to go to college and that your kids can have a better life than you? So before we talk more about politics, Senator McConnell, Donald Trump, the last days of President Obama's time in the White House, um, I'd like the audience to get to know you a little bit better because your story is pretty extraordinary. You were born to American parents in Shiraz, Iran. Yes, I was. What were you doing there? Well, I was there because my mother was there. (laughs) What was your mother doing there? So my father was a physician, and when he... Uh, was um, discharged from the army, he was looking for ways of continuing what he enjoyed most, which was research. And uh, he and my mother are adventuresome spirits. And a lot of the jobs that he was applying for in the United States, because he was African-American, were offering him salaries that were not competitive with his peers. And so they said, well, look, let's just go on an adventure at a time when they didn't have children. And so they started looking for job opportunities. At that point, the um, Iran and the United States had extraordinarily strong diplomatic ties. And the Shah of Iran was very interested in ensuring that the Iranian citizens were receiving the best possible health care. So he recruited uh, through his Department of Health physicians from all over the country, all over the world, not just the United States, but all over the world, to come and help start hospitals in regions that didn't have state-of-the-art hospitals. So my dad helped start the Namazi Hospital in Shiraz, and I was the second baby born in the hospital. Why didn't you become a doctor? Two reasons. Um, One, organic chemistry. 
<laughs> I feel that you. That was a showstopper. And the second, which was in rapid um, tandem, is that I uh, was dating a medical student who took me to his anatomy class where they were dissecting cadavers. Uh, you know, after that, that was that. But I did intend to be pre-med when I first started. You went to Stanford. I went and to Stanford. The University my, of Michigan. And then law I, school. after medicine fell through, I decided, well, I'll be a lawyer. So then I went to, right to the University of Michigan, yeah. And then you returned to Chicago, where your family home, yes. played a pretty sort of storied role in that city's history, and particularly its African-American history. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I think probably the commitment uh, to service goes way back in my family. My great grandfather was the first African-American to graduate from MIT. Uh, he was the first African-American architect in the country and devoted his life to um, building uh, primarily at Tuskegee Institute. He designed most of the buildings on that campus, but he also did schools around the country and cared a lot about ways of making sure that the African-American community was housed well. And then his son, uh, whose name was also Robert Taylor, was the uh, chairman of the Chicago Housing Authority. And so those were my two of my ancestors. And then my parents always were both academics, but always believed in public service and giving back to communities, to those who much is given, much is expected, was the value uh, that I was raised by. So going into public policy was really in your genes. Did I think you feel so. a lot of responsibility? I mean, it's so incredibly impressive when you hear about your family history, did you feel that you had to continue that tradition in any way, or do you think it was so? It wasn't pressure, Katie, at all. I never felt a burden to do something committed to making our community better, uh, however we define that community. And in fact, I spent the first six years of my career practicing law, and my parents thought it was terrific. I had I was the first lawyer in our family. I worked for um, big law firms, fancy offices. And he was actually having my daughter that made me realize that what I was doing wasn't sufficiently satisfying. And you know, when you leave your kids, you want to be doing something important. Um, and I was at that point a single mom. And so I felt drawn to be there and be home and be that perfect parent. And yet every day I was doing something I didn't think was useful. And I didn't think it was something that would make her proud. And so I, in terms of my motivation, I think my parents just wanted me to work hard and do something that I cared about. I wanted her to think um, highly of me. And that's what drove me into public service. You also um, obviously became very, very friendly with the Obamas early on. And you played a bit of a role, Valerie, I know, in their courtship. Um, See the, now, all right. Now let's a good. Let's correct okay, the record good, because there because we're confused about it. We, yes. you know, there, it's been everything from you set them up on their first date to you. Went, I recall that you went out with them one night. I did. I did after they were engaged. So oh. I take no credit for the romance um, getting going. And in fact, the reason we went out to dinner is because I had offered the first lady a job working for me in the mayor's office. I was Mayor Daly's deputy chief of staff at the time. And someone had sent me her resume and said, you know, a brilliant young woman has no interest in being at a law firm. And I said, that's my kind of person. And so I... Uh, 10 minutes into the interview, I was just bowled over and also realized after about 10 minutes, I was no longer interviewing her. She was interviewing me, and I was trying to sell her on why she should do this. And I made her an instant job offer. She said, wisely, let me think about it. And then when 
she got back in touch. She said, my fiancé thinks it's a dreadful idea, and he doesn't want me to go work in the mayor's office. He started as a community organizer rallying against government, trying to force government to be a force for good. And he's concerned that if I'm in there, then maybe, you know, we might disagree. And what will happen if I if she disagrees with what the mayor wants to do? Long story short, she said, would you mind having dinner with us? And let's talk it through. And let's see if we can convince him that you're right and it's a good fit and that he's wrong. And I did. And that was 25 years ago. What did you say to convince him? I still remember that dinner pretty well. You're smart to ask that question. (laughs) We talked about, and he was very good at getting me to open up about all kinds of things. Uh, We talked about my um, first five years living in Iran, the time he spent in Indonesia, what it was like for me to go from Iran to London for a year and then back to the United States where I had an English accent and spoke three languages and started at a public school and kind of the bullying that I went through and the teasing. So... Everything was just totally screwed up when I first came back to the United States. And then he talked about what it was like for him living in Indonesia and then going to Hawaii and uh, being from mixed parents. And and so it was a really frank, honest conversation kind of about who we were as people, what our view was of the world, what it was like to live outside of the United States and how that gave us an appreciation for the United States and just how extraordinary of a country it is. And I think that those basic kind of core values and perspective about the world is where we've responded. So did he have you at hello? No, he had me after like three hours. <laughs> he had me at hello. He had me before dinner. I think I had him after the end of that dinner. Because at the end of the dinner, I said, I know this was a test. How did I do? And they were like, we'll get back to you. But she did end up coming and joining my team at the, at the uh, mayor's office. So was that the beginning of your friendship? Yes, it was. And then... We worked together for a couple of years, and when he first ran for state senate, I helped him on that campaign, and then later the first lady joined the University of Chicago, and I was on the board there, and she joined the medical center where I chaired the board, and so her paths and mine crossed professionally uh, until we came here, and then when he ran for um, U.S. Senate, I chaired his finance committee, and we lived in the same neighborhood. I've known, uh, he's known my daughter, I think we were talking last night, since she was six. So it goes back a long way. So you became one of three senior advisors uh, in the uh, Obama administration. Do you think that your friendship has ever not served both of you well? Have there been times during these eight years where, I don't know, where you were emotionally usurped maybe where you might have been intellectually. I mean, how do you separate those two things? And were there time, times when they overlapped in a way that wasn't helpful? You know, I think about that a lot because people have often said to me, um, does the friendship get in the way of being the senior advisor? Does the senior advisor get in the way of the friendship? That's a much better way of asking yeah. the question well, I just asked. <laughs> so thank you. But only because I've heard it a lot, so I know it well. Uh, I think it has only helped. I think that part of being a senior advisor is knowing the person really well who you are responsible for advising, um, trusting that person and having that person trust you. And senior advisor to the President of the United States, um, you want a person who shares your values, your vision for the country, your motivations. And so I think it has actually been a real strength. And We compartmentalize, and so when we're in the office, I call him Mr. President, and I make sure that whatever advice I give him, 
is well thought out and that I've consulted broadly and widely since part of my responsibility through public engagement and intergovernmental affairs is to make sure that I'm not just talking to him off the cuff, but it's informed by the American people and, and the other elected officials whose lives are going to be impacted, jobs will be impacted by what we do. So I'm very careful about his time and I'm very careful about making sure I have my ducks in order. When we're socializing, I just tell him whatever comes off the top of my hat, but we're not talking about my job. I mean, who in their personal life, when you're hanging out with your friends, spend a lot of time talking about your job? His whole point when he's down is to be down. And so I'm very respectful of that, unless he brings it up. So it's kind of up to him, but I would never try to burden a dinner conversation with what we're doing at work. We talk about our kids, we talk about television shows, we talk about what are we gonna do this weekend, just like everybody else, and I think, I think honoring the, the necessity for normalcy in his life is where I'm being the best friend. So here's how the uh, New York Times described you a few years ago, and this struck me. She is the single most influential person in the Obama White House. Partly it is her ubiquity, the guiding hand in everything from who sits on the Supreme Court to who sits next to him at state dinners, the White House staff memos peppered with VJ thinks or VJ says. If Karl Rove was known as George W. Bush's political brain, Ms. Jarrett is Mr. Obama's spine, and this tidbit from somebody who probably isn't too fond of you, she is the only staff member who regularly follows the president home from the West Wing to the residence, a practice that has earned her the nickname, the Night Stalker. How do you react to that? Well, first of all, I think that um, it is only natural in Washington for people to um, be threatened by proximity. That's point number one. And so I take a fair amount of that with a grain of salt. By ne it's only natural because of our relationship that you might have something like that kind of a title. Um, I think that people who know the president know that he's the one with the firm, steady spine. He's the one that's never wavering. He doesn't need me to buck him up in that respect at all. And that if anything, on days when I am and other members of our team are feeling glum, he's the one who says, remember why we're here. And early on, he used to tease me because I would watch cable television and I would come in ranting and he'd say, turn off the cable and turn on the American people. And it was a nice like, you know, jolt to say, okay, you're right. Why am I bothering you with some 24-hour um, gobbledygook when we are the time you have here is so precious, you have to use it really well. Uh, so that's kind of my reaction to it. I will say I think, um, I think people now appreciate the role that I have in the way that when you start with a new team, everybody's feeling a little insecure and that that kind of um, nonsense is just perfectly normal. But I think the folks who are here now and those with whom we've worked so closely over the years recognize how important it is for me to be not just the advisor to the president, but a member of the team. We'll be right back with Valerie Jarrett. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about our sponsors, and we'll hear from some visitors outside the White House. This season, Crate and Barrel wants you to play matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match with your gifts, that is. Good design becomes great design when it's in the hands of the right person. No more random gifts. These are matches just waiting to be made. The host you know with the most, there's a platter designed for them. Someone else on your list into entertaining, we've got glasses for that. There's even a set of spoons perfectly crafted for your next dinner date. Match them up with the right person 
and you've done something truly gifted. These gifts were designed with you and yours in mind. So find the ones that were made for each other. Crate and Barrel. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout there's nothing more idyllic or perhaps more american than the white house at christmas time I sent Brian out because <laughs> because it was cold. <laughs> yeah, out to talk with some White House visitors from all over the country. Have a listen. Where are you guys from? Keller, Texas. Trustville, Alabama. Durham, North Carolina. Uh, we're from England, uh, London. We live now in London, so yeah. And is this your first time at the White House? It is for me. Yeah, uh, it's not my first time. No, <laughs> it is the first time at the White House. Yeah, first time to DC. So we just got here this morning. It's my first time. Yes. What do you think President Obama's legacy is? Wow. That's a... What do you think? I think his legacy has changed. He's done a lot of change, um, done a lot of good for the country. So I think he left his mark in a good way. You're going to miss him? I will miss him a lot. (laughs) I might cry. How do you assess the last eight years under President Obama? Trying. Trying to assess or a trying time for you? A trying time. Are you excited about the transition to Donald Trump? Nervous about it? How do you think about it? A little nervous, but I think he's he's going to be good. Um, I, mean, it's a, I don't know. It's it's, it's touchy subject. Yes, <laughs> it is a very touchy subject, uh, but we're going to roll with the punches. Yeah. Uh, I think most people in Europe are kind of fairly more nervous about it than anything else, but guess I uh, have to see what happens when he gets in. I'm very excited about the transition. I mean, it's, it's America. It's a democracy. I don't have to, I don't have to be a fan of it. It, just, it is what it is. And so our democracy works, so we have to support it. Okay, loyal listeners, we have a question for you. 2016 was considered by many, I think by most, probably by all, to be a very tumultuous year. What do you think the best thing that happened other than our podcast in 2016. (laughs) We'd love to hear from you. Call 929-224-4637. Brian Goldsmith will be standing by to talk to you. I'm kidding. But there is a recording, and we'd love to hear from you. Again, the best thing that happened in 2016. Give us a reason to ring in the new year right. We're back with Valerie Jarrett. Um, I, I, we have to talk to you about the election. I know you described it as a punch to the stomach and soul-crushing. Do you think it was a repudiation of Barack Obama? Not at all. 
if you look at where he's polling today, he's as popular as he's ever been. Personally popular. Was it a repudiation of his policies? No, I don't think so at all. He wasn't on the ballot. I mean, obviously, he campaigned for Secretary Clinton. What was clear is that his popularity was not transferable. What happened? Oh, my goodness. There are going to be far wiser people than I to figure but that out. very wise, Valerie. <laughs> if you had to say... She didn't get enough votes in the places where she needed to have them. Do you, you think mean people I don't... knew too much about her and it was Clinton fatigue? I have no idea. I really just don't oh, know. Oh, come on, you do, but you're I just don't. not going to say. <laughs> I, I, I don't know because for right now... Um, I mean, I, I described those emotions of how I felt the day after the election. And you know what? We've had to pick ourselves up and, and we have to do for President-elect Trump what President Bush did for us, and that is run a very smooth and orderly transition. I was so impressed with, and I co-chaired President Obama's transition, so I was right in there. And I know how supportive President Bush and his team were to us. And again, different party coming in, and President Obama's direction is that we are to do exactly the same thing. You're not going to remove any President. typewriter keys. What did they do? What <laughs> and the remove the W's. We are. We <laughs> are going to the, the, uh, some of the outgoing Clinton people. It was a bit exaggerated, but there were a few pranks on the Clinton side. Come on, nothing up your sleeve? We have nothing up our sleeves. We're just going to do the very best. Because in so doing, we've learned a lot to your earlier question in the last eight years. And we feel responsible for giving them the benefit of what we've learned. And then it's totally up to them whether they want to accept it or disregard it. But my time and my energy, my emotional energy and my physical energy, Katie, are going to the transition and wrapping things up that we have to do. Do you think President Obama regrets giving Donald Trump such a hard time at that White House Correspondents' Dinner back in 2011? He was on a roll. Uh, Donald Trump was not amused. And some have even suggested that really motivated Donald Trump to run for president, even though he had discussed it prior to that uh, night. Does pres has President Obama ever said, damn, maybe I should have teased him so much? He has not said that to me. I mean, though, it's all, it was all meant in fun, my goodness. That it was pretty much, brutal. It was intended to be funny, and it was intended to kind of, I mean, if you look at all of his correspondence um, remarks, they're always intended to kind of poke fun at the people who've been poking fun at him all year long, and well, it's his and, and opportunity to— Donald to, Trump hadn't poked fun at him. He had perpetrated this whole notion that he wasn't a U.S. citizen. This false notion that he was yes, not thank you exactly. for this well, false notion. Obviously. For this false notion. Yeah. Yes, but—and so, so the president uses that for humor, just as he has used so many other things that have been totally unjustified and did made humor out of them as well. But, and the, so, and the, but the president must not have found that amusing or funny, the whole— idea that someone was spreading these falsehoods. Well, of course it's not amusing or funny when it's happening to you, but the correspondence dinner gives him a chance to poke fun at it in a way that hopefully has people appreciate how ludicrous most of it is. And he does it in a, always in a very self-deprecating way, um, which is his style. And it's, it's really to... I mean, it is intended to amuse, but it's also intended to inform. And I think he does it really well. And I have no idea whether or not that's what motivated President-elect Trump to run for office. He said in a recent interview, Valerie, quote, you know, I'm like a smart person. I don't have to be told the same thing in the same words every single day for the next eight years. 
So is that what the intelligence, the daily intelligence briefing is, being told the same thing in the same way every day? No, I don't think you think that, and neither do I. I'm obviously not going to tell you what's in the daily briefing. It's all classified. Do you um, find it bizarre that he's not being a part of it? Well, we'll see when he becomes president what he does. But what do you make of this broader wedge that is now being driven between the president-elect and the intelligence community, this sense that he's in effect, siding with Putin over And Republicans our... like John McCain and Lindsey Graham. Well, you know what? He's going to have to sort all that out. And I won't be here <laughs> to advise him to how he does that. He's going to have to figure that all out. And I, my guess is that they will... You know what? I don't have but a do guess. You feel I don't like... really have a guess. We'll see what he does. Do you feel like... <laughs> You're living in the twilight zone? These are interesting times. She's trying very hard to be a, uh, a, a politic, uh, if I can put words in your mouth, representative of a president who's trying to provide the president-elect as smooth a transition That's well as he received. I wish I had said it in those I'm words. Lo- I'm looking forward to Valerie Jarrett unplugged, personally. Maybe in a few months. <laughs> yeah, exactly. but, but speaking of the transition, you know, the president and the president-elect uh, met in the White House right after the election. Yes, they did. And now they've been talking fairly regularly on the phone. They've Is that spoken true? by phone. That they have how certainly. Often? I don't know exactly how many times, but they they certainly have kept in touch. Can you characterize that conversation anyway? I mean, obviously, you're not going to reveal what they said, but um, how how has the president sort of um, thought about his conversations? Has he learned anything new about Mr. Trump? You know, I, I would say that what the president. Um, is trying very hard to do is offer the president-elect his best counsel and to do that in a confidential way because that's where trust comes and to give him the space he needs to make what are going to be some pretty important decisions. And to categorize it more deeply than that runs the risk of um, in any way um, impeding that effort. And I don't want to impede that effort. So I think that uh, the president has made himself available to the president-elect, and um, those conversations have been constructive. Let's let's uh, talk briefly about the Affordable Care Act, because I know that's something Thank you, you. want to share with people. Thank you. And I think it's sort of a two-part question. On November 1st, it was announced that premiums were going up 25%. And some people thought that that might have impacted the election, one of many factors. Um, do you think it was too far-reaching? Why didn't it work better or for some people? And what is your biggest regret when you look back on, on health care reform? Well, first of all, um, let me correct the comment about premiums going up that high. 72% of the American people can obtain health care under the exchanges for $75 or less. And so you have to factor in the subsidy for the people who can't afford it. We have had double-digit premium increases in our country forever. The health care costs under the Affordable Care Act, since the Affordable Care Act, have gone up at the slowest inflationary rate in the last 50 years. So it is working. It's working well. There are over 20 million people who have health care who probably didn't have it before, who have it today, not to mention the 150 million who are now covered from not losing their plan if they have a pre-existing condition or having their premiums jacked up or having 
annual or lifetime caps kick in right when they need their insurance the most. Women who are able to get preventive care without a copay, whether it's cancer or birth control or domestic um, abuse counseling, all of these benefits that are in the Affordable Care Act. Children who can stay on their parents' plan until they're 26. So there's a lot in it that is very, very good and worthwhile. To your question about whether or not um, he did too much, you've always got to try to do as much as possible, keeping in mind that what you're trying to do is make sure that we're healthier. There's nothing more fundamental, obviously, than our health. And he wasn't willing to just do a small slice when he had an opportunity to do the whole thing. And the door has always been open to constructive suggestions for ways to make it better. But what the Republicans have done, I think it's now over 60 times, is vote to repeal the entire package. I don't know how you look those mothers who have sick children in the face and say, no, you shouldn't have affordable health care. I don't get that at all. I think they're going to. I will. I, I just hope not. I hope it's, that they don't. It seems like it's numero uno on the agenda. I think if you start looking at what the impact of that will be on people who now you're saying, because you're a cancer survivor, you can't afford health insurance and you can't obtain it anymore, when that's who needs it the most, you're going to say that a child with a chronic asthma condition is not insurable when they know you're going to have a lifetime challenge. You're going to kick all these kids off their parents' plans when they don't have a job that provides health insurance. I just think that the consequences of, of repeal without a replacement that provides the basic benefits that are in the ACA is going to hurt a lot of Americans. And this is coming out on a day that is important for the ACA. Why is that? Well, the enrollment period began November 1st. Uh, we are encouraging everyone to try to sign up by December 15th, because if you sign up by the 15th, you're going to have health insurance on January 1. What better New Year's present to yourself and your family than that? But the enrollment period does run through the end of January. And again, we're seeing in the first 12 days of this enrollment period, we had a million people sign up. People want health care. And they realize that with the subsidy, they can get it for a, a very inexpensive cost compared to one trip to the emergency room. One former uh, advisor to the president said to me recently that, ironically, President Obama got a lot more done in the early years of his presidency, but he's a much better president today than he was in 2009 or 2010. Do you agree with that assessment? And if you do, uh, what do you think he's learned? How do you think he's gotten better? What strengths have come through? What weaknesses have been corrected? Well, of course he's a better president today than he was eight years ago. We're all better in our jobs after eight years doing them. Uh, and this is a job where, as I think his predecessors would say, there's no way you can be completely prepared for it until you get here. And when you are the one who's responsible for making the kinds of decisions that the president of the United States has to make, um, you build on a foundation of hope uh, and experience, but this is new. And so, yes, of course, he's a much better president today. I think when you say he got more done, I think that, as I described at the outset, the economy was in this free fall, and it was important to him to move swiftly. And when you look at the fact that our unemployment rate went up to a high of 10%, and now it's 46 the steps that he took early on helped get us to where we are today. So I don't look at, I look at it in that continuum. Obviously, the Affordable Care Act was passed, the Recovery Act was passed. Um, there were numerous um, successes on the world stage that laid the foundation for now. The fact of the matter is, I think, 
where we have been more effective in the second term is a lot of the work that we have done that didn't require Congress. And so when it, as it became clear, and perhaps it should have become clearer earlier that we were going to have such a hard time, but it was so hard to believe that they weren't going to work with us. But we pivoted and uh, did a lot of work at the state and local level where the impact has been dramatic, um, as well as with the private sector uh, and leveraged resources and efforts to have a maximum impact. And so if you look at everything from... Take an issue like paid leave. We're the only developed country in the world that doesn't have a federal paid leave policy. But now cities and states all across the country, as well as private sector, are requiring paid leave. Uh, Take an issue like raising the minimum wage. We, again, tried to get Congress to raise the minimum wage. They didn't. Cities and states all across the country and private employers have raised the minimum wage. Some people think that's really the answer to a lot of issues, to do it more at the grassroots, state and local level. You said that was one of the biggest disappointments, one of the two biggest disappointments. What was the second? Uh, Comprehensive immigration reform. Profoundly disappointed that... And and they're both issues, Katie, where the vast majority of the American people supported what we were trying to do. And for, again, short-term political interests, we were unable to get the Republicans in Congress to move forward on either one. But the momentum is building in the states. And eventually that momentum, we believe, will put sufficient pressure on Congress that they respond to that, to the people who elected them and in whose service they are supposed to be. Are you worried that Valerie, that Barack Obama's legacy is going to be slowly, painfully for you and for him and other people who support his policies dismantled by a Trump administration. There's the head of the EPA. The person he wants is a basically doesn't believe in climate change. They want to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. Republicans do. Um, is that depressing for you and scary? Well, of course it's scary, and of course it's depressing, and we're hoping it won't happen. And again, through the transition, we're going to try to provide as many facts, evidence-based facts, as to why we put in place the policies we did in the hopes that we will persuade them. Um, we may not be successful on every front, but my goodness, we're going to get caught trying. We have a listener question, Valerie, that ends things on a personal note. Okay. Hey, this is uh, Jared Simsar from Charleston, South Carolina. Valerie Jarrett, uh, so you have been one of the president's closest political and personal confidants over the past eight years. And so I'm wondering two things. One, how has the presidency changed him over the past eight years from the man you knew back in Chicago? And two, you have much greater visibility into uh, Barack Obama, the father. Uh, husband and friend uh, than most people do. And so because of that unique lens, uh, what do you see that you wish the rest of America could see when they look and think about uh, President Obama? Thank you. That's a great question. Two-part question. I'll try to remember both parts. Uh, I think the First Lady said it best when she spoke at his 2012 convention speech. She said, being president hasn't changed who he is. It has revealed who he is. And having had the chance to, as I said earlier, be here since day one and see how he makes decisions and how he formulates his priorities, um, I am so proud that his true north has never wavered. 
He's never forgotten why he was here. He's never forgotten that he's in service of the American people. He's never allowed any short-term political interests to get ahead of what's important for the country. The Affordable Care Act is a good example. There were many who said to him, just do smaller pieces of it. It's going to cost you politically. And he said, what's the point in being here if you're not going to do big things that help people? And so... Um, has he grown and matured? Has his hair grayed? Most definitely. Uh, and uh, all to the best, but his, his motivation and sense of what it means to be the president of the United States has not altered one bit. And for that, I am so proud. So really very, very proud of him. I think the second question was what might we've done? No, as a father. Oh, as a father. As a, as a father, father oh, husband, yeah, yeah, yeah. and... Unless you want to ask, no, no, answer no, no, what no, might no, you've no, done. No, no. <laughs> I don't know how I had that in my head. No, um, what do I know? What do I see? Um, I see a good man. I see a good man who was loved as a child, but who had a real uh, hole in his heart for the father who abandoned him, from the father who abandoned him, who fell in love with a strong uh courageous, talented woman, and her parents became, and her father in particular, became mentors to him too. He, he often says that he looked at her dad to see how to be a dad. And he's someone who, on the busiest possible day, values family. When 6.15 comes, we are all getting nervous because we know at 6.30 he better be walking upstairs to have dinner with his family. For all the years where he was campaign or campaigning or working in Springfield, it pained him unbelievably to be away from them. And so that simple act of sitting around their table every night, even if it means he has to work for three or four more hours or five more hours after dinner, grounds him, and they're not interested in his day. They want to tell him about their day. And so he's a really good dad, and he's a wonderful husband, and he can have the singularly hard burdens of being the president of the United States and the leader of the free world on his shoulders and still have both time and emotional energy for them. And I think for parents of the world who are feeling very busy and wondering how they can balance work and family, he's a good role model for that. You make time. And I think that role model that we've seen from the White House of this couple who have raised these very normal, terrific, grounded children uh, within this environment speaks volumes to their, uh, their character, their integrity, their sense of core values about what's important. And um, there's just been nothing more important to him than to be that good role model for his daughters and to comport himself every single day in a way that makes them proud. That caller was from Charleston. And I know you have a meeting to go to, but I think for you and for many Americans, one of the most poignant moments of Barack Obama's eight years was when he spoke at that service in Charleston. That was quite a day. And I think that's probably, correct me if I'm wrong, one of the most vivid images you'll take with you when you leave the White House. 
It's interesting you'd bring it up because today when I came in, I stopped at the mess and they play um, former speeches of the president sometimes on television. And it was playing when I got there and I stopped and listened to it for about 10 minutes through the part where he talked about the amazing grace of the people, Reverend Pickney and, and his um, fellow parishioners who perished that day. Through the example of their lives, they've now passed it on to us. May we find ourselves worthy of that precious and extraordinary gift. As long as our lives endure, may grace now lead them home. May God continue to shed his grace on the United States of America. It was a hopeful story. It was an honest and raw story, but it was intended to show that we can do better, that ordinary citizens can do better, and that we should ask ourselves some really hard questions, and that in so doing, doesn't diminish our love for our country. It's similar to the speech he gave in Selma on that point. It's how you prove your love for the country, to say, let me be willing to have some uncomfortable conversations and think, I'll think in an empathetic way outside of my own skin and appreciate a different perspective and a better perspective so that I can learn and and do right. And I would add as a postscript to that incredible speech, it's also the same day that the Supreme Court ruled on marriage equality, which um, I had the pleasure of calling the president to tell him the news uh, right before he was scheduled to leave for Charleston. And um, I will never forget that I said to him, Mr. President, the Supreme Court ruled on marriage equality today 5-4. And there was a long pause, and he said, and who won? And I was like, oh, my goodness, I did bury the lead. We won. <laughs> and then we came back to the White House after the trip to Charleston, and a ver- two very junior staff people had come up with the idea of um, lighting the house in the rainbow. And I stood on the North Portico for about two hours with many of my colleagues here in the White House and just reflected as the colors became to, began to pop out uh, how far our journey had come in a relatively short period of time. Although, as the president said, it felt like a thunderbolt, but only because ordinary citizens had worked so hard to make that day, decades to make that day possible. And that really kind of sums up what this is all about. We carry our baton for the length of the journey that we have, and then we hand it off to the next one. And what you hope when you look back is, is it, you know, good is better and that we did good. Think you're gonna cry? I might any second. That's why we better wrap it up. <laughs> I cry a lot these days. And what are you gonna do when? Ne- what's sleep, next? Sleep. Get some sleep. Lots are you gonna of sleep. take a break? I'm gonna take a break. Yeah, I think. Um, I think I could sleep like ten hours, but I'm gonna push the limit and see how far I can go at one stretch. Uh, and you know, take a moment to kind of rejuvenate. I still feel, and I've said this often, if he had won another term, I would be here for one more term. But we don't have that in terms of stamina. I feel like I could do it. But I'll get some rest, and then I'll figure out how to continue to be a force for good. That's my hope. Well, I'd like to say on behalf of all of us, thank you for your service and for everything that you've done for the country. And thank you for talking with us. for it's being been an so honor. generous. It's been an honor. It really has. And I, I think that there's so much progress we've made and still a lot of hard work left to do. And we're all lucky to be in a position to do good. So we should. We have miles to go before we sleep, as Robert Frost said.
sleep and then miles to go is the way I'm going to look at it. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Valerie. I enjoyed Thank our conversation. You. Thank, you. Thank you. Thanks to Gianna Palmer for producing the show and Jared O'Connell for engineering and mixing it. And of course, Mark Phillips. Mark, we love our theme music. I can't wait to get my own uh, version of it so I can play it while I'm on vacation. Or make it your ringtone. Maybe. Yeah, that would be great. That would be great. <laughs> maybe iTunes can help us arrange that since they picked us as one of their favorite podcasts of 2016. Oh, thanks for reminding me, Brian. Remember, you can also email us at comments at currickpodcast.com or find Katie on social media. She's at Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram and katie.couric.com on Snapchat. And you're on social media too, Brian. Go on, give yourself a plug. Just trailing slightly behind Katie and followers, I'm at GoldsmithB on Twitter. Best of all, you can rate and review us on iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe because that helps more people become aware of the show. And we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Chris Gethard, and here with me is dream analysis expert Gary Richardson. And we are here to give you a taste of a brand new podcast called In Your Dreams, presented exclusively by the fine folks at Casper. We listen to the wildest, weirdest dreams submitted to us by you, our listeners, and we do our best to figure out just what those dreams could possibly mean. I look over the side of my bunk bed, and there are Huey Lewis in the news. You're saying this person might have interests in style and fashion specifically. You can saying, tell that from I'm that voicemail. 99% certainty. Plus, we'll be joined by some very special guests. The word brutality comes to mind. Mortality? Blood. Bloodtality. Subscribe to In Your Dreams right now on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Good night. Dealing with a bit of a cold. That's why I sound kind of congested. Yeah, you have a sort of a throaty uh, tone today. Like Brenda Vaccaro. Yeah. For yeah, our older listeners. Bit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just, a, just a whisper of Susan Estridge. <laughs> but we're... <laughs> Theodore Roosevelt explored uncharted Amazon territory, helped modernize American football, and won a Nobel Peace Prize. I'm Erin McCarthy, editor-in-chief of Mental Floss and the host of History Versus, a new podcast that shares the inside stories behind some of history's ultimate fighters. Season one tackles Theodore Roosevelt, who went head-to-head with seemingly unbeatable foes like corruption, time, and death itself. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.